Hey there, listeners. It's your host, Tao. Welcome to another episode of Bites of the Roundtable. Today on the show, I'm super excited to welcome Vanessa Garcia Polanco, an amazing food scholar and activist who I've been diligently lurking and cheering on via Twitter. Vanessa, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, everyone. Thank you for inviting me, Tao. It's great to be in this space. Hello, everyone. My name is Vanessa Garcia Polanco. I was born and raised in the Dominican Republic, and I recently completed my master's in community sustainability, food systems, and agriculture at Michigan State University. And I'm currently the Federal Policy Associate at National Young Farmers Coalition based in the U.S. So many interesting roles and different studies that you have partaken in. How did you get into this sort of field of like food studies and agriculture and farming? I think all started back home in the Dominican Republic. I was born and raised in a really agrarian town. There's a lot of connections to agriculture. My dad's still a farmer in the Dominican Republic. My family has been landowners for generations. I grew up just like going to the Conuco, that is like the traditional name for like uh, a plot of land that is being worked on in the Dominican Republic and always being really interested about the environment and food. But one of the reasons that I got really interested in food is I think my grandma has like a healthy grandma obsession. We cook cooking and food and many people have say that that's that's really Dominican sometimes and for me that was always really curious like like Dominicans are a little obsessed with planning their meals like we're planning our meals three five days out or things like that and for me that was like really you think so I was started thinking a lot about food and gender like I saw especially like my grandma's generation being so inclined to domesticity and to this like cooking relationship into the domestic sphere and that started asking a lot of questions about why people have at different spaces in different ways as it relates to food, agriculture, environment, and natural resources. And then I moved to the United States and I think it was really different. Everything was different. The way we consume food here, the way we interact with food here. Like you don't go to the mercado and you know that you don't you don't go to your traditional small business providers that have been providing for your family for 30 years. My relationship with food changed a lot when I migrated. And I think that allowed me to connect more to the things that I was seeing that was different in the United States, but also the things that were similar. And I think that's one of the reasons that I became really connected to, to immigrant farmers and young farmers in the United States, because a lot of us are interested in still reclaiming and still holding to a lot of these agrarian and food culture traditions. And it's really hard to navigate that in a society that doesn't put farmers and immigrant workers and in in food and agriculture at the center. So I remember when I told my mom that I was interested in studying more, like my major was environmental economic, but I, I was doing my concentration in agriculture and food studies and food systems. And my mom just said, like, I took you out of the countryside, but I couldn't take the countryside out of you. And I think that was such a beautiful moment. It came to terms with my family that this is what I was doing this to embrace my culture and my background, not to be a disservice to them and to the sacrifice that they had done migrating here. I think it allowed me to connect with my culture in a different way. I feel like because I became really interested in things like culturalization of food, how food changes in the lifespan immigrant, that allows me to be asking a lot of questions about Dominican history and the Dominican diaspora and especially right now mostly about so like Dominican race theory which is what I'm really trying to pivot and do more of in my independent time because I see my role as an immigrant now in the food system, as a person who is trying to connect the links between policy, research, and community organizing, because I inhabit all those spaces, and sometimes it's hard to see what hat I'm wearing. Sometimes I'm doing a policy thing, sometimes I'm doing a research thing that is more like the colonial food studies, and sometimes I'm just doing community organizing in my lo- in the local space that I inhabit. So yeah, you can wear a lot of hats at the same time, and they will combine at some point. 
I like to think of those intersections as just one giant hat. It's very hard to kind of navigate, especially in academia or even in the workforce, how to market yourself because people give you policy roles like policy analyst or this sort of thing. And they want you to do one function, but you can't just do one. You have to do them all. Do you mind sharing with us some of these experiences you've had juggling all the different hats or just one giant big hat? I think my new role is a great example. I'm the Federal Policy Associate National Young Farmers Coalition, an organization that I was a member for many years before. Before I joined as a staff and I was I think so excited I was like oh my god I get to be in the other side because I always I will go to their events and I will always tell people uh, these young farmer issues are related to immigrant issues are related to policy issues and transnational issues because I will talk to young farmers in Rhode Island and in Michigan and they will be like I'm having problems with Lancet session and I will be like oh my god me too because half of my hometown has migrated and now we don't know who's going to take over all the farmland in the Dominican Republic Th- these issues connect us and I think that's why I appreciate having my scholar hat because I can ask the questions. My policy hat because I can find out what the policies are making and creating this uh, socioeconomic and political issues. Also my organizing hat because we feel like in organizing in communities when we push ourselves to connect those dots. For example, I really like that I can bring your different identities to your roles. I was recently in the job market and I was told that I, w- I didn't have enough policy experience. And in other spaces, I was told I had too much policy experience because I had too much community and research experience so it's all about who you're marketing yourself to and what about ba- what how do you put yourself forward a little bit but my current role has allowed me a great balance on that so my current role engages with farmers asking them to identify policy priorities so that's the community and engaging part that i like it is asking me to uh, think about research when i put forward policy recommendations i always try to quote food policy people food studies people people from all over academia to because research to inform policy and we don't see and we don't see that being done as often right now so I see it as a way like I think that's what I really love keeping up a feed on academia because I can see those new publications I can see those lizards I can see those scholars doing this work and I see something that I can influence maybe at the Department of Agriculture and other policy area I can be like so and so did a research on that I can put that in a policy recommendation that I'm submitting to the Department of Agriculture about how they should be running urban agriculture for example I think those are the three ways those hats combined but as you say it's one it's one giant hat and you're always using the different skills it's just one week you may do it a lot and then you may not do it for six months it's a balancing ad but for me what has been really exciting is i see more people thinking about this i definitely think the last four years in the u.s taught us a lot about prioritizing science there has been a lot of great movement like the science rising challenge in the union for content scientists and many other more science organizations that have really focused how we can engage more research into science policy and vice versa. How do we engage policymakers in using science? So I really like that nexus because I think it's really beautiful. It's a chance for promoting equity. If you're gonna do a science-based thing, so you you can you need, you have to do positionality. You have to do other methods that will challenge the way you're presenting policy and research. And I think that's why I, I like that nexus because there's opportunities to advance equality and justice on that space. What do you think 
based on your experiences as an academic, as an organizer, as a policy analyst, and all these different roles you've played, what do you think are the three most pressing issues when it comes to kind of navigating the U.S. food system and foodscape right now? I know that's a really big question, but so to put it more simply, what are the three things driving you crazy right now? What are the three things that are driving you to just work harder than you've ever worked just to engage with our food system? I will start with transparency and accountability. I will say 90% of my job is complaining. Uh, it's, it's complaining about things that are not being done transparent, that we cannot hold agencies and the federal government accountable. That, that's the number one thing that frustrates me. There's, there's some really great lack of transparency. And as a researcher, I want to see the data. I want to see the testimonies. I want reports. I want to know how this money is being distributed and by race, ethnicity, age, and regional differences and stuff like that and sometimes it's an afterthought or it's not provided because it's, it's too much extra work especially this year we like a lot of like the pandemic and relief programs we saw a lot of lack of transparency in that hurt us in our accountability work and so we have been pushing really hard to increase accountability and transparency the second thing that is really bothering me is what i usually call like main narrative versus other narratives i feel there's agents in the food system and in the food justice movement who take a lot of clout who take a lot of voice in a space and that becomes a main narrative and that's really helpful because we should have a lot of narratives because we 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 all different diverse people in the food system and a woman of color immigrant and then there is many other people in the food system in the u.s so i feel like we should try to diversify how we consume food justice and food news so we can hear more diverse narratives because then it gives out for poor dialogue and poor policy and poor program implementation when we only are aware of main narrative. And that's not only me as a policy, as a researcher person, but as a consumer, as an eater, as a person who consumes media too. And I think that's why I have been really fascinated in trying to learn more about food media because I feel that many people in our circles only focus on food media. I'm fascinated by the way they think, the way they perceive. And also we all consume media more than more than usual this year, I would say. So I feel we have to be really careful and strategic about where we're getting our news and what narratives are we listening to. Always trying to keep diversification of your news and the narratives you're hearing. Also the people that you're meeting and the organizations you're interacting with. Because you need to challenge yourself to be hearing every part of the story and how different people interact with the food system. This is something I think it goes back to this idea of the main narrative too a little bit. Like cannot homogenize the food justice movement and the food studies movement. There's many different narratives out there. There's many different people with different opinions. And sometimes you, you just make assumptions there and I think that that can be really harmful so just engaging with different people also not trying to hold out one narrative homogenizing the entire food food justice movement you have to welcome dissent and you have to welcome diversity opinions <laughs> I feel this is something I have grown a lot this year like seeing how people who are even more deep and more ahead of me in, in this space think about these things and how I think about it and how other people think about it we should always keep pushing ourselves to different a more provocative conversations and realities. Thank you so much, Vanessa. I found real resonance in your topical conversation about diversifying food news and especially the food justice movements. Because when I was younger, I had this very strange conceptualization of food. So my mom is an immigrant refugee from Cambodia and my dad is also a Vietnamese refugee from the war. And they have 
This kind of perspective that quote-unquote nice and healthy food that's kind of an elitist thing, it makes me think of Whole Foods. I remember the first time I went to a Whole Foods, I was, I want to say, 11 years old, and we were just passing by because it was in a shopping center, and I think it was with one of my cousins. She walked in there to buy her groceries, and I was walking around in the aisles, looking around, and I was like, this place has olive oil on tap. It's like, there's more than one type of olive oil, and there was the option to like bulk by without plastic and that was something that really struck me very hard when I was younger because I was at that age when I was developing an awareness for things around me and concepts but what I experienced in my kind of food cultural upbringing was the best vegetables have to be a little bit dirty they have to be from the Khmer grocery store there has to be people who are all speaking different languages to me who are all looking for specialized ingredients and that was the creation of a wholesome meal for me it was the kind of dirt and grit and the journey that the food took no matter how far it was it was because it could give us that close experience to whatever cuisine that we were cooking. So Cambodian food or Vietnamese food. When I look at food media, because I've done some classes on food media, I kind of think about how even all the voices who are writing about food media are also very, very white and very Anglo-centric and very American or UK or Australia based, which is fine. It's not that they don't have wonderful things to say. It's just how can I relate this kind of understanding about food if there's so many barriers for me to even speak? Why do you have to have a degree in food studies or experience working in a food campaign to have opinions about what you want in your food system and what matters to you the most? I just think you just touched on a lot of wonderful things there. I'm also very interested in potentially hearing about your different projects. So in my lurker ways, I totally went to your personal website and found some blurbs about all these extra projects that you're doing. Do you mind sharing them? Yeah, sure. I can start with my oldest that I just turned three years old and I cannot believe it has been three years. And that one is Food Justice Friday. For Justice Friday, I never saw it as a science communication tool until someone recently pointed out to me and said, oh, it is. I just never thought about it like that. For me, it was more a tool to hold myself accountable as a way to reflect. I was taking a really intense food justice course at the time and I was working in my first like full-time food policy job in DC. I wanted to start reflecting and some of the things that I was hearing and some of the concepts that I was seeing from academia, from policy, and from just general life and food media. So I started the Food Justice Friday as a way to reflect because many people think, oh, you are a woman of color. Whatever you, you, whatever you say is going to be okay. It's going to be food justice appropriate. And I'm like, no. Even I, as a woman of color immigrant, I have privileges that have allowed me to position myself where I am in the food system. Basically saying that I don't have privileges is like a disservice. So we all have privileges. We all interact with your food and agricultural systems in different ways. For me, Food Justice Friday was a way to like hold myself accountable to who I am in the food system and basically saying, this is how I experienced this based on my privileges and X, Y, and C, who I am and where I and it has been really fun. It has been exhausting too. Like every, one little one Friday I didn't do it and I literally freak out. And I was like, oh no. It's also really exciting because many people have engaged with it. And it's also an opportunity just to challenge people. Like we all 
most people like you and me probably think our food more than usual but some people might not so i saw an opportunity just to be like hey for justice friday like say something about food today and think about the justice implications on that i think it's it's just an opportunity for us to continue challenging ourselves in that reflection process and also being not being afraid of like telling our stories i think that's the most beautiful part of like for justice friday it's like it's really personal it's not like i'm quoting research i make cool research sometimes but it's like this is I, Vanessa. This is how I experience food. Here's a paper about it. Here's a, a media article about it. This is what I think about it. And yeah, it's just an opportunity to... I, f- I feel like three years ago, I was not as comfortable being a public scholar and Food Justice Writer really helped me to feel comfortable saying I and saying this is me versus just like having conversations about academia and policy that are really specific and silent. We can always bring the eye to that. So yeah, that was, that was a really fun project. Another project that has also been we work on for a while and i need to revisit soon is this it's more like a workshop that i created and it's called food is never just food and it's mostly it's mostly the way i think about it it's a bunch of food study exercise in a one hour session and i feel it's just a way to challenge mostly people of color like me who we're not always as comfortable or we can always be as comfortable telling our food system stories as a way to reflect on things. In that workshop, I just facilitate a lot of questions that we use to talk about your past food and agriculture experiences. And many of those are like exercises that you do in like food studies classes or in ethnobotany research. Or in, there are questions that I use with my research participants during my remaster's research. It's just a way to for you to start reflecting and writing down. And also it shows you examples of the way many great people of color are using social media and many other different tools to talk about their food system stories. That's what I want to see. I just want to see more people like you and me who have different narratives, who have different experiences in the food system, be out there and telling their stories. And I'm not expert. I'm a mediocre social media user, but I feel like I'm good at facilitating conversation. And for me, that's just a way to facilitate conversation and to push you to be more out and about in who you are. Lastly, I will say my third project I really want to go back to. I'm trying to wrapping up, finishing, publishing my thesis and a thousand other commitments. This is something I kind of regret a little that I didn't do my master's thesis on. I wanted to do more Dominican food studies and that's the way I'm calling it. Spanish speakers and Latin Americans had no being a prominent subject in food studies, at least they're Mexican-American or Mexico in general. And there's only a few scholars who are interested specifically in Dominican food outside a Dominican Republic. So I had just been collecting a lot of resources and creating like an outline for people there to start researching and start finding the resources to research and learn more about Dominican food. And I think my passion for that is, as I told you, is like really connected to this idea, like understanding transnational food systems and also food culture as an immigrant, but as a person that was also really curious to see how like an island nation has developed their food system in an island nation like Dominican Republic with a complicated history with racism, colorism, and slavery. Right now, I'm trying to pivot and do more of that in the upcoming year trying to really merge Dominican food studies with like other Dominican decolonial studies. Thank you so much. So I just wanted to tell you that your Food Justice Friday movement is one of my favorite things about Friday. It's the reason why I've decided to release my podcast every Friday to kind of join that movement. And in the past when I've kind of teetered on whether I would continue to do science communication or even called the podcast something along the lines of science communication, I just remember you saying, oh I would love to see you do something food related more on Fridays and I was just like oh I must do it for Vanessa so I would like to thank you openly on the podcast for kind of encouraging me and giving me the push that I needed 
that my stories and the stories of everyone else on the podcast really matter because one of the things I really have noticed when I did the calls for contributions is that most of the people who put forth that they wanted to speak fall into the positionality of the main food narrative. It was mostly men, it was mostly educated white men from English-speaking countries, and I was just saying to myself, I was like, as much as I love to have all of your stories, I also need a wider net to kind of capture that diversity. When I say decolonize food media, decolonize food studies, I really meant it. And it's not that I want to exclude them, it's just I have to curate my collection of stories so that they can flow and everyone can be heard. It can't just be five stories from people from similar positionalities because they're not the same but they could be similar and I'm trying to give the platform for people like I don't know my mom who never (laughs) interacts with social media other than liking family Facebook photos. Second, I love your project of food is never just food because I think it speaks to me on multiple different scenarios and levels in my life. It's never just food. It's something so much more than that. So I really appreciated your project on that. But lastly, in terms of Dominican food studies, it's very shocking to me because in Maryland, most of my Spanish-speaking friends I had growing up were Dominican, Puerto Rican, Guatemalan, and El Salvadorian. So for you to kind of say, oh, people in academia, Dominican food studies is kind of neglected, I never thought that that was the case because I had such a very specific experience with Dominican people people in the diaspora as well as immigrants that I was just like, how can they not talk about Dominican foodways and food narratives? What three dishes do you consider to be the keystones of Dominican food? Just to start some issues, you know? Oh, this is hard. And I think the older I get, the less I care about authenticity. But at the same time, I get like, ugh, like I get like a bad feeling if I see that food that I claim as my own, claimed by others. So, for example, Anthony Bourdain, rest in peace, visited Puerto Rico. He named a dish that is mostly embraced by in the Dominican consciousness as Dominican as Puerto Rican. And I was outraged. I was like, oh my god, he did it. But then the more I study about this idea, like decolonizing and authenticity, the more I had to understand. It makes sense that. People who are really like, really close to each other will come up with really similar dishes, with similar ingredients. So the more I learn about what is Dominican food or what is ex food, the more I realize it's all related to xenophobia, nationalism, and sometimes racism. For me, this idea that food belongs to just my culture, yes, I can say it aloud, but I need to put all that caveat like, this is what Dominicans claim is Dominican. I, I, will, I can put you in a corner and challenge you that it's not Dominican. Because I, this is what I like to research. I like to start research Dominican food. And I think coming to the U.S. has really helped with that. Because here you go, I can go to a Turkish restaurant or a Lebanese restaurant and be like, you do this, but also we do. Why? And then you start making those connections. That's something that you claim entirely as yours is not yours. I'm going to say my favorite dish. Mango, mashed plantains, wheat, onions, vinegar, butter, salt, and sometimes oil too. And usually serve with what is called the tres golpes. So that is fried salami, fried cheese, and fried egg. That's a perfect example why a dish that I love, that I claim as Dominican, may not be Dominican at all. We know that one of the reasons that Dominicans eat a lot of plantains is because plantains were cheaper to feed a slave, and plantains are not 
at all native to the Americas. They are native to Southeast Asia and they were brought to Africa to feed the slaves and then brought to the Americas to feed slaves. And that's the reason we love plantains in the Caribbean and across Latin America and also in the in Western Africa. The cheese, one of the reasons we eat a lot of cheese is especially fried cheese. It's actually part of our Lebanese heritage. We welcome Lebanese refugees over 120 years ago to the Dominican Republic. Now when I want fried Dominican cheese, I just go to the Lebanese store or the Middle Eastern store and buy Lebanese cheese instead because it's the same thing but I cannot tell that to my family <laughs> second the salami salami usually pork or beef product it can also be made with turkey and it's an embutido it's like a cold meat the Dominican salami is thick and usually it, you, you fry in thick rounds one of the reasons we eat a lot of salami again because we welcome Jewish refugees fleeing the holocaust in the northern part of the country and they started a cold meat packaging business that became salami across all the country and now we claim salami as Dominican and fry eggs that's just fry eggs and actually my hometown in the Dominican Republic is the top producer of eggs in the Dominican Republic so that's my favorite dish I can eat it three times a day all the time my mom makes it better than me and it's delicious it's great but and I claim that to be the most Dominican thing even this name is related to Dominican history the name Mangu according with the history when we were occupied by Americans because we were occupied by Americans several times soldiers were like oh man this is good this is a really good dish man good mango and that's how mango became mango that's one of the origin stories there's another one that i don't remember right now that's just an example how food that you claim is your own is not really your own it's like it's influenced by colonization by occupation and by immigration and obviously this is not an easy conversation to have with some people i will be like hey do you know that this is not 100% Dominican or like this is what makes a Dominican all these things that have happened but aside from that there are many other things that I like I really like Sancocho I had some yesterday because it was a rainy day and Sancocho again is like a beef stewed with root vegetables but it's also a great representation or like or African heritage or like Taino heritage and also is shared and there's similar Sancochos across Latin American and the Caribbean. And third, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for fried things, so I like fry anything. And one of my favorite things is just I fry yuca rolls, fried cassava rolls. But again, that is really shared with many other Caribbean and Latin American countries. Those are three things that I like about Dominican food. It's funny that you stress this idea of one dish being claimed by multiple countries because when my partner Giovanni talks about dishes that are always claimed by every country, he says that everyone has their own tres leches recipe and they'll fight to the death about it. Or something that is somewhat related to an empanada, like some type of baked or fried thing. And I was like, so which one is the best? And he's like, that's how you start a fight. <laughs> you just don't bring up who's the best. You have to embrace all the differences, and, and they're all different. Like an Argentinian empanada, it looks really different than a Dominican empanada. I feel like the older I get, the more I understand food studies, the the more I become a little off about this idea of authenticity and like origins. I think that's one of the reasons. My other, my second favorite podcast is Food Origins by the Western Magazine, and I I am loving those beautiful conversations about food origins because they really challenge you. I love that magazine. I love their podcast because they really challenge you to think about like I remember one of their articles was something about that is 
Panamanian bread, but it is also something that we eat in the Dominican Republic. And then I heard like the origin story of that food, and I was like, oh my god, I know nothing. It's like again that moment when you're like, when you think you know something, you know the origin, you know the authenticity of something, and then you get new information, and everything is challenged. That's why I say keep an open mind and. I don't know. Authenticity is um, really controversial, especially in food studies. So embrace it, but with a grain of salt and with a lot of grain of skepticism. And also recognizing that authenticity is just a tool also for nationalism. So we have to be really careful when we claim what foods are part or, or imaginary as a nation. What foods are we excluding when we do that? Because it's usually in the lines of race and color. Last little questions. First, do you mind sharing with us a story where you had to grapple with authenticity? Maybe you went to a restaurant and tried, quote, Dominican food, and it was a lot different than how you understood it to be as someone who grew up in the Dominican Republic. And what, what sorts of things did you like about it? So I was in the Midwest for the past two years. There was not a lot of Dominicans there. If they were, I couldn't, I could not find them. But in my town, there was a lot of Mexican restaurants and one Cuban restaurant. And there were a lot of Cubans because it was a refugee reception city after the city I was probably the only of one of the few Dominicans in my group friends in my master's program my university and I just remember like every time I wanted something like Dominican food or like wanted to feel close to home I would just go to the Cuban restaurant and these dishes have completely different names but they're like one step two step difference from what I would call Dominican food I will order congri and I forgot the other name a lot of thing right now but it's basically what I will call moro de habichuelas negras and carne guisada so black beans and rice with stewed meat yes it was a Cuban restaurant we are islands we are a throw stone away from each other in the Caribbean and I feel like that feeling of comfort that I felt and that feeling of familiarity that I felt is what matters to me even if it was not Dominican food or it was just good food and it was food that had the same conditions like Spanish-speaking colonized large black population Taino heritage island Caribbean obviously the last 50 years having a little different in our food systems but it's the same it was the same baseline so I felt comfortable in moments like that you have to you have to start looking at more like the things that we have in common and not the things that we have in different and I think that's one of the reasons I'm really looking up to some scholars who are really focusing on the Caribbean in this like I don't want to say pan-Caribbean approach but more like who just look at the Caribbean as a more like I don't want to say homogeneous but a place that has more similarities than we ourselves give credit I think that's why I'm really trying to people to more the Dominican decolonial approach because actually what a lot of what I'm reading is from Cuba from Dominican Republic from Haiti and from Puerto Rico and I think that different things happen there but our food is strangely similar so there's always opportunities to be learning from each other there do you have any last words for our listeners I invite you to ask questions to your grandma. That's my favorite part about what I do. So I'm really happy to be back home and just being asking grandma a lot of questions. I feel like when when I start thinking why I got really interested in food justice, it's always because of my grandma. My grandma has really strong opinions about food and agriculture and about land. Like she's, a lot of things that she says, like how land is so important to her identity and to who she is as a person who came from a really agrarian part of the Dominican Republic is really important to me. And I obviously hits home, 
hits uh, hits my heart and my identity about who the person who I am and the person who I want to be. Just ask questions about your past and your relationship to your family and to yourself about your relationship to food and agriculture. Yeah, so you may discover nice things about yourself because it's never just about food. It's, it's about what the stories that food lead us to. Thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. It's been such a good time. No, thank you. Great questions and it's great to talk about these things. Hey there, listeners. It's your host, Tao. Thank you so much for tuning in to the fifth episode of Bites of the Roundtable. It really means a lot to us. We hope you enjoy these sound bites from a lovely gastronome from across the world. Much love to Vanessa Garcia Polanco for sharing her thoughts and insights about the intersections of food research, food policy, and food activism, as well as sharing some of her favorite Dominican dishes. Listeners, if someone tries to tell you to calm down because it's, quote, just food, just say it's never just about food